geez, the countdown never ceases to stress me out. Uh, but it's really cool to uh, host this conversation tonight. You guys know who I am, Christopher Sweat. This is a rant. But I have a really amazing guest, Hollis Robbins. And Hollis, uh, you're, uh, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about tonight. And I, I don't want to take too much control over the conversation, but um, I, I definitely want to give the audience like a, maybe a good idea of like how you think about your background and uh, maybe an idea of, uh, I don't know, briefly, like how you got to where you're at today. And I think that'll, I think that'll set the stage for our discussion. Great. You want me to jump in right now? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm delighted to be here. We've we've been having so many good conversations on Clubhouse that, and I've heard about your podcast. That's a delight to, delight to to sit and talk to you. Um, in terms of my, I don't even know how I would talk about the route from there to here, sure. um, because there's different kind of versions of the story. And you know, I've heard people you tell your story and. You know, when you are where you are, you sort of go back and you pick the things that seem to have led you to where they were, but maybe you didn't see them at the time. And so I have sort of two parallel stories. There's the story of, of who I am as a literature professor, which is I always loved to read, and I grew up in rural New Hampshire and went off to college early um, with my life understood through books, which is, of course, a terrible way to understand life and did a variety <laughs> of things. And so the, that narrative to get me to be a literature professor and then a dean seems like, oh, that's a straightforward path. Meanwhile, my dad was an entrepreneur, started small businesses and, um, you know, microchips, integrated circuits. I always looked at them. He was always an entrepreneur before it was cool. And then they'd go bankrupt and then he'd start again. And he had a hard time <laughs> getting funding because it wasn't the VC uh, infrastructure there are now. And in fact, at one point in time, um, he was trying to get money from um, through this bank and through this other sort of investor. And on Sunday, we got the Boston Globe and this guy was found dead in the trunk of a car in Florida oh. with bullets, <laughs> you know, with bullet holes everywhere. Jeez, and so yeah. this was kind of my upbringing, like it's hard to get money to start a small business. And for me, then going off to college, it was like, well, I need to be earning and raising my own money because I don't want to be taking money away from his business because he might end up with another investor who gets shot. <laughs> so that's a kind of one story to my interest in Silicon Valley and that. Then I was also very involved in politics because it was New Hampshire, first primary of the, of the primary season. So I worked on every political campaign from like Muskie to Connolly, um, Republicans, Democrats, I met everyone. And so I've always been involved in politics. And when I lived in Colorado, where you are, um, yeah. um, I worked on Governor Romer, Roy Romer's campaigns. I was on a number of uh, Senate campaigns and uh, raised money for a hell of a lot of people. And then it was when I got sort of sick of politics that I thought, all right, I'm going to go back and get a degree in literature, which I always loved, which I did then at, at uh, Boulder. And so, so all cool. of the threads sort of came together. And now I am where I am now. So I hope you took notes on that. <laughs> Yeah, it's super fascinating. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. So there, 
I'm not even sure where to start because there's so many things I want to ask you about. And you're, you are one of the few people to this day, at least that I've met where, uh, sometimes some of the knowledge that you're, uh, uh, putting out into the world leaves me speechless. Like I actually need to go back and, and like really think about, uh, what you're saying. And sometimes I need to take some notes. Um, but, but one thing that stood out to me, and maybe this is kind of a, a good segue, um, uh, how did Afri uh, African studies or black studies, uh, you know, kind of enter your, uh, your learning path or your academic route? Like, how did that come into the mix? It's a really, again, it's a, it's a not straightforward question. Um, when I went off to college, this was in 1979, there was a, um, a checkmark you could have for your roommate, you know, religion, smoking, and race. And I wrote, doesn't matter, because it didn't matter. And I ended up with a black roommate. And, you know, I remember some people that I met, like, oh, didn't you check the box? And I'd be <laughs> like, of course, I what, like, I don't, I, I don't know enough to know what you're talking about. Um, so in that first instance, um, and again, I, we had black families in New Hampshire, but it was just, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know how it is somebody gets to be racist. I don't know how it is somebody gets not to be racist. I don't understand any of those things. All I know is like, all right, well, this is fine. But I continued to live a kind of integrated life, I guess. And sure. so the questions of what was on or off a syllabus or movies I saw, I didn't, so I didn't categorize them as much. And so in grad school, actually, um, at, uh, at Boulder, I had a class, um, with this great professor, uh, Nigerian professor, when I first read, um, Henry Louis Gates's work. Um, and I thought, okay, this is interesting. And I liked his journey. I thought it was interesting. Um, and then when I went off to get my degree in Princeton in um, 19th century literature, this is a true story. I was reading The New Yorker. When I had worked there for a while. And he had, yeah. Skip Gates had found, um, found a manuscript that he believed to have been written by an enslaved woman who escaped from North Carolina, went to New Jersey, and wrote the story of her escape. It was called The Bondswoman's Narrative, um, and her name was Hannah Crafts. And I, anyway, it was he was excerpting it in the New Yorker magazine, and I was standing by the bus stop waiting for my kids to come home, reading this thing, and he says... He said, clearly, she's this woman's a beautiful writer. She knows how to write. And she lived in Washington, D.C. Look how she describes this. And he has a little pull-out quote. And it said, um, gloom, gloom everywhere. Gloom where it rolls over the Potomac. Gloom where is it? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, that's the second paragraph of Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Fog, <laughs> fog everywhere. Fog where it rolls over the Thames. Fog where, and I'm like, why is this enslaved woman writing a novel sampling Dickens, right? The school bus comes. I'm like getting my kids, get off the bus. I got to go inside, do this. And I pull my copy of Bleak House down because I keep reading. And he says, clearly this woman was enslaved because look how she describes um, the slave huts. And it was this paragraph about squalor and people being everywhere. And I have my open my Bleak House and I get to the paragraph that describes the London slums. Mm. And she's using that language 
to she's basically using Dickens. And I go through the New Yorker. I'm like, why is nobody noticing this? And I had worked there for a while. So I called somebody up. I'm like, what's going on here? How does it that I'm noticing this thing that you didn't notice? They were like, Are you, stand by your phone. So okay. 10 minutes later, Henry Louis Gates calls. And he said, Hollis Robbins. <laughs> he said, I sent this thing out to every single African-American studies scholar in the country. Nobody saw this. Why did you? Wow. And I said, because I'm not. I said, because I'm a friggin' Dickens scholar. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to overnight you the book. There's four black pages. You can fill it with whatever you want. And we're going to work together mm. for the rest of my life. Oh, and, wow. And so we have. And so my specialty has turned into what it is enslaved people because that's the 19th century but what it is that black writers read which is mm. and how they read what they read mm. which is and how they took like again this woman hannah Crass, we finally found her about 10 years ago why she would have been reading charles dickens and seeing something familiar there mm, that is fascinating and for anybody that doesn't know the shorthand skip gates also known as henry lewis gates Correct. And uh, some people may also know him in popular culture through the show. No, Finding your roots. Yeah. Finding your roots. Um, yeah. And and so the story you just told us is about how you met Skip, and it was because of a piece in the New Yorker. Is that right? It was from a piece in the New Yorker, but I was reading the piece in the New Yorker because of this class I took at Boulder with Lake okay. and Aiko, where we first read him. That was probably, I don't know, seven or eight years earlier. And I had taken this class because I just thought, like, how can I be a literate person if it was a class in African-American literature? How can I be an Americanist if I'm mm. not, if I don't know all of American literature? That's so fascinating. And I, I feel like um, a lot of people may not have their head around, um, like, uh, I guess, black American literature or black literature. But so like one focal point that you were looking at is like, what were these black writers reading? Like what was informing or shaping their perspective? How are they responding to it? Yes. So and and it really, it's a question of, I mean, if you look at the trajectory of black literature in America, and it's a trajectory that, you know, kind of begins with Phyllis Wheatley. Do you know much about Wheatley? I do not. She is the considered not the first black poet. There were poets before her, but published the first volume of poetry by an African-American or black woman in America in 1773 called Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral by wow. Phyllis Wheatley, who had come to America on a slave ship uh, named the Phyllis um, in about 1760 and was purchased by this family, the Wheatleys in Boston. Mm -hmm. And she was kind of a, you know, a house servant. Um, uh, and the older sister in the family saw that she was smart, taught her to read. By like 12 or 13, she was reading Greek and Latin and writing her own poetry. Mm. And it, she was this extraordinary person and wrote a whole bunch. I'm writing a book about her now with, with Skip Gates. Oh, wow. And, but subsequently to her, all sort of future black poets have looked back on her as how not to write because mm. she wrote like a kind of boring 18th century poetry that nobody reads anymore. So okay. there's this founding 
text in African-American literature that doesn't sound like African-American literature, you know? And so it's a trajectory of sounding more black over time. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Sure. Um, which makes it hard for a trajectory and, and students now coming at black literature to see what was done before as anything but imitation. And that is kind of, that's sort of the challenge. Wow. <laughs> Jeez, okay. You're doing it again, Hollis. It's like taking my speech away. And you know, you know this, but so does everyone else. Like, not much makes me speechless. <laughs> but you well, do. This is, I mean, <laughs> like, even in the Harlem Renaissance, right? And I'm sure you had your training in Harlem Renaissance texts, um, uh, Langston Hughes, for example. Briefly. Um, who were writing in uh, traditional poetic forms, like the sonnet, like other kinds of forms. But he was a real modernist, um, Langston Hughes, and he broke away and he wrote in free verse, excellent poetry. By the time after the 1960s and the demand for black studies programs in predominantly white institutions, mm-hmm. um, when the black arts movement was taking hold in the mid-1960s with Amiri Baraka and uh, Larry Neal and a lot of these great thinkers, they were like, throw it all out. Throw everything out that came before now. Throw anything out that was imitative. And we start over with a, bradi- with a radical black aesthetic that doesn't have any roots in tradition. So this is what happened in the 1960s. There was very much a rupture. And so, as you can see, my scholarship is kind of necessary and inconvenient. Okay. And why do you say inconvenient? Why do I what? Why do you say inconvenient? Oh, why do I say inconvenient? Because it it requires that you go backwards and look at some of these um, poets that were writing in forms that were, uh, are grounded in European forms. Hmm. So interesting. Geez, so, um, you know, I also like, Hollis, when I read your tweets, they are poetic. So, like, do you consider yourself or have you published, like, any poetry publicly? Like, do you see yourself as a poet? (laughs) I'm a bad poet. Um, Okay. I was writing this book on the African-American sonnet tradition. So it probably makes more sense to you now why I would have been doing this. So I was taking a poetic form. I think you probably know what a sonnet is, right? Yep. 14 lines, prestigious verse, Petrarch, Milton, Wordsworth, whatever. And it was interesting to me to take a slice through black literature by saying, okay, why would a black poet be writing in the sonnet form? And what can we tell when we look at this history, this genealogy of black sonnets? Does anything come up that tells Mm. us something about black poetry about literature, and it does. Um, it's And in the midst of writing this book, um, because basically here's the thing, is that sonnets have double voiced. Like there's eight lines of a question and six lines of an answer. Eight lines of a problem, six lines of a solution. Mm. So it's kind of always an argument and it's kind of double voicedness in the Du Boisian sense. Okay. So black poets love this form, really signified upon this form, did cool things with this form. And so in order to understand the form, I thought I should kind of 
start learning to write some. So that's sure. all I do is I write sonnets. <laughs> oh, wow. And so this was kind of like so that you could like bring like more critical or uh, more in-depth analysis. But, yes. but actually, by actually having maybe like, I'm going to use my words, but like a mechanical understanding of how the sonnet's constructed and maybe Precisely. some of the, maybe some personal challenges trying to structure it. Exactly. Jeez, Jeez that is <laughs> fascinating. Um, yeah, and it's crazy because you have the sickest Twitter handle. I'm going to promote it here really quick. You have the sickest Twitter handle. It's funny because I, ha I memorize it now because I can't find you on Twitter as Hollis, right? But uh, it's anecdotal. And I've been wanting to ask you about this for a long time. Like, well, did that just like roll off of your tongue and you're like, there's my Twitter handle? Or did you have to put some thought into that? Like, how did that come about? Well, so, Christopher, I'm going to win the Nobel Prize in economics for quantifying <laughs> anecdotal value. Okay. Okay. No, this is absolutely the case. This is absolutely the case. So, you know, you, you, somebody says something or you have this anecdote or this, you have this little story, right? And it's representative yeah. of something larger and it's sure. kind of funny and it's just kind of interesting. And you, you know that, like, you know, like you go to the store and something happens and you see somebody or whatever, and you know, you're going to get mileage off that story, right? You're going to sure. tell that story. Like my story about the school bus and Henry Louis Gates, right? I've been telling that story for years. I get <laughs> mileage on it. What is the value precisely of that? That's anecdotal value. Like, could that be quantified? Can we figure <laughs> out how a story like that is worth and how much it's worth? And if I could do that, that's the Nobel Prize in economics right there. So Dang. I've been looking, I've been thinking about this for decades. <laughs> okay. Dang. Okay. And, to, and so anecdotal has been in your mind way before Twitter. Is that what we're saying? Yes. Yes. Damn. I had a blog back, I don't know, in the early part of the millennium called Anecdotal Value, where I would just write these funny things that would happen to me. And Jeez. Yeah, it's a long time ago. That's like so once cool I got though. on a plane and I sat next to a guy who was a parachute salesman and we just had the best conversation. And that's the kind of thing I'd write about <laughs> Dang, okay. Like, do you want to be sitting next to a parachute salesman on a plane or not? I don't know, but I mean, if we're going to, <laughs> we might as well figure out a good anecdote for uh, a tweet. Hopefully you connect to the internet while you're on the plane. I do. My friends don't for some reason. <laughs> I got a tweet. If, I, if it comes to me, I got Excellent. a tweet. And you got to think my Twitter handle is like almost urban and completely like different from how I speak and think now because, you know, I got my Twitter back in... 2009, which would have meant that I was 19 years old. Oh. Yeah, and my Twitter handle, maybe at 19. No, I was like, wow. I was going to be, I was going to be 21 that year. I was 20 when I got on Twitter. There we go. But my Twitter handle is sweat, sweatum, and I'm sure sweat nobody. Yeah, yeah. So like, if you had a comment or an apostrophe, I'm sorry, in front of the e, sweatum. Because there was like this whole thing about, uh, I had this brand. Most people don't know this about me anymore because I put this in my closet or whatever. But I had this brand I was doing like uh, nightlife marketing. And 
And by the way, I've been self-promoting the name Chris or Christopher Sweat since I got out of high school. So it's not like that just started recently. Okay. I'm getting better (laughs) at it though. Um, But my brand, the brand was, uh, my friend came up with this. He was like, just call it Don't Sweat Them. And I was like, (laughs) what the fuck? So anyways, I rolled with that. And that's why my Twitter handle Sweat Them, but it's not as cool as anecdotal. But it does have my last name in it, so I don't know. It does, exactly. Trade-offs. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always trade-offs. Um, so uh, could you, if you don't mind, you know, you're in, um, some people call it North Bay. I don't think they're from California, though. But you're in the Sonoma area, and, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, you know, it took me a while to start getting exposed to kind of an understanding of the value of um, liberal arts or even what that entailed or the value of a liberal arts education. So you have to think when I was first tapping into the university system two years ago, uh, I thought I was going to be able to finish this business uh, major And I get into it, you know, I've been in industry since I got out of high school, so I have actual industry experience, and then I'm tapping into this business program, and I'm like, ah, too rigid. And, uh, you know, some of the specializations are in information systems, but I've already installed, um, implemented, or done a whole bunch of stuff on tons of enterprise technology. That's so boring. So a really close friend of mine motivated me last year when I was transferring to Boulder, just to change my major to something in liberal arts. So I ended up uh, with political science, which is super fitting, and I'm mm-hmm. definitely going to be able to cross it over. I'm already seeing it cross over with the things I think about in business and so forth. But so for you, as the, um, the dean uh, um, in the arts and humanities section of uh, Sonoma State University, and obviously having um, you know, an extensive background in liberal arts education, uh, do you ha- what, what are your thoughts from your current position just on arts and humanities or, you know, education in general? So first of all, I applaud you being a political science major. It's a great major. And it's, um, it's the, in some ways the best that uh, the liberal arts has to offer because there's a usefulness to it. But Certainly. you're also um, uh, political theory and political science reaching back into uh, the human aspects of what politics is. What does it mean? Uh, what is the polis? <laughs> what, is, what does it mean to, uh, you know, to be jostling for power in the different ways that humans over time have jostled for power and tried to persuade each other? So when I think about um, the liberal arts or arts and humanities, it, I think mostly about the ways that universities are conservative in a way in terms of conserving what has been the best of what has been written and published and thought about and debated over time. And the best of, of course, is deeply problematic. Um, and, and I think about that in terms of my own field, in, um, in terms of what has been left out of universities for a very long time, the voices of particular communities or genders. So, and yet uh, the university still is a repository, right? So when you go to university, what you are doing is 
saying I'm here to learn the best of what has been written and published over time, given that there are gaps, right? For many people, that general endeavor is inconvenient, right? Mm -hmm. Because if somebody's very interested in being new and now and hip, who wants to know that somebody did this early on, right? And I think about something like like the Joe, Joe Rogan phenomenon or scandal that's going on now. And you probably saw me tweet about Byron, Lord Byron, right? Yep. This great poet at the beginning of the 19th century who just wrote scathing, nasty, satirical poems um, against, you know, kings, other poets, all sorts of things, um, sure. was called Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know. Um, but he was did it with such elegance, Right. And it's such beautiful verse um, that it, you know, people tried to cancel him, Mm. but his satire um, always stood on its own, stood on its own feet as its own literary work. Right. So he didn't it wasn't the thing he said. It was the thing he said. And he said it with beautiful craft. Right. Mm. Now, if you know that and you're thinking about that and that's in your head, then you look at some of these other speech controversies as things mm-hmm. like, but you didn't do it stylishly, did you? <laughs> I right? could see that. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're only yeah. dealing about content and not form. So mm-hmm. what I'm saying is that when you have a deep background, because the form and the style and the quality of the discourse has remained and has been conserved, when you emerge into the current world, you sort of have an eye out for that which is well-crafted, is well-styled, works, right? I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. um, mattered in this world not just because of the content of what he said, but his beautiful speech, his craft, right? That was part of his political pull, was that he, he... um, captured the minds and imagination. He was a stylist as mm. well, right? Plenty of, um, anyway, you talked the other day about in your rant about Malcolm X, same, yeah. right? A Incredible stylist, stylist, right? Style, oh, yeah. craft, matter. That's what a university will tell you. Mm. Interesting. And, okay, and so it's obvious there, well, maybe it's not obvious, and I should get that out of my vernacular. Um, to me, I've always seen from a distance, like that distance is closing as I get older and get uh, more education under my belt. But from a distance, I think I've always noticed the style and the craft, but I couldn't put a finger on it. Do you think that I struggle a little bit with like how the style and the craft takes place and then like the different ways that we think about who it's accessible to. And yeah, well, you uh, no, you've got a thought. No, 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 no. You need to take a class in poetry. And I'll, I'll, I mean, again, I'll, I'll be happy to point you in the right direction, right? I'm teaching Please. a class right now um, on uh, called Advanced Poetry Workshop up at Sonoma State. Usually deans don't teach, but I like I like teaching. I like working That's with That's so students. cool. <laughs> 
And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're the sort of text that we're looking at is, is Robert Hayden, who was this great um, Black poet from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. He died in 80-something, I okay. think. Um, anyway, he was a real craftsperson, right? He, he, mm. he, he could, you know, sometimes rhyme, sometimes not rhyme, alliteration, sonnets, you name it. He, he knew his craft. Mm-hmm. Um, studied with W.H. Auden in Michigan in 1941, I think. And, and, and again, Auden taught him craft. But, you know, students are sending in the poems that we're going to be workshop that, that they're writing. And a lot of the poems are, they're good, but they have no craft. They're like, you know, I had this thought or this boyfriend or, you know, thinking about this and, you know, rainbows. And, yeah. you know, you want to say, like, I get it. Those are some great sentiments, but you're going to have to decide where the rhymes are, where the words are, mm. what I call the hardware and the software of a poem, right? Anybody mm. aware of the poem, the hardware of the poem is the structure. And if yep. you don't want to have a structure, that's fine. But you have to like Picasso, you know, the, the learning how to how to draw representarily, re- representatively in order to sort of throw it out the window. Okay. I see what you're saying. And I think... Um... I like rejected these uh, traditional structures for whatever reason. And maybe like I was a little arrogant because, you know, like for your hardware and software example, I started working on hardware and software when I was 11. And, and, you know, I kept doing that all the way through my like middle school and high school years, you know, through failing high school, still building wireless networks, uh, simulators, computer all the computer stuff's been in my life for longer than I can remember. In fact, I've been streaming audio and video on the internet for sure since 2001. Wow. Yeah, so when some of these audio apps or video apps come out, I'm like, guys, I've been doing this shit since, <laughs> I don't know, since I was a sixth grader. Straight up. You know, so, but, but, I'm, but I'm slowly learning to, like, I could have benefited from, like, some heuristics. Uh, so, some interpersonal communication skills, some uh, additional awareness, all the things that I believe that I'm getting from a liberal arts education. Way more than that, too, by the way. And then um, um, I also get to study the, um, I get to get just enough economics and just enough philosophy. It's actually amazing. Um, and then I just love how it ties back to the stuff that I think about um, with the whole computer stuff or, you know, business. I love how it ties back to business. I, I, it's actually still surprising me. Like, like, oh, that is the edge that I just wasn't available to me. You know, like maybe had some decent hardware, but the software was unrefined, you know? So (laughs) this is an idea that I couldn't accept until maybe a couple of years ago. And I'm, it's still opening up, opening me up to things that I never imagined. Well, I think audio is such a good way to come out. Um, having a background in audio is, is such a good way to come out, out, um, come out, come after or come into political science, right? Mm. Especially when you think about um, the Greek and the Roman traditions, right? Um, so, you know, here we have great political traditions um, uh, in the Senate or, you know, in the marketplace or in the theater where you don't have audio equipment, right? You had projection 
Mm. right? And you didn't have memory, you had repetition, right? But, but given Greek spe great speeches, the rhetorical traditions, the classical rhetorical traditions had to do with how to speak persuasively in the fewest possible words loudly, <laughs> right? So to understand these speeches is to understand, you know, these, you know, Colosseums or the Senate or whatever, and again, I don't know my sort of my classical place is enough to know to be direct about this, but I know the basic theory is the way to understand these speeches is a guy over a crowd trying to reach a whole bunch of people and needing tools to do this really specifically. So when mm. you read these old speeches, when you read the, these speeches, you don't read them, you read them for the content, mm. but read them out loud and understand them as audio, <laughs> as spoken speeches, as produced loudly with open mouth, right? Over long periods of time, there's no quiet asides. You know, mm. it's all big out there. Jeez, yeah. There's always like, um, I don't know. I'm starting to just accept the fact that there are a lot of things that I need to learn. You're young. <laughs> I know, but but how but you got to you? remember. I know, but Hollis, I'm a pretty grandiose person, and so I went through. I'm 33 now. I'll be 34 later this year. But still, I know what you're saying. I went through this uh, immense grandio grandiose period, which was probably an overcompensation for different things in my 20s, and it actually got me way further than I would have imagined. But then I didn't realize that my 30s would be this period of intense rigor. Like, it's like, all right, you talked a lot of shit, you experimented, now you got to actually have a bank account that matches with that check that's coming out of your mind. You know, <laughs> you know, so um, did you, so for you, like, you know, obviously um, around education and academics and so forth, like, did you grow up with a lot of structured understanding of like the value of education or what was that like for you? Well, well, first of all, let me just tell you, I went back to get a master's from Boulder when I was 34. So oh, sweet. Okay. So yeah. I was going to say, I didn't, yeah. I, I, so, you know, I didn't get my PhD till I was 40, 40, 41, I think. So, oh, cool. you know, and that was considered late for a lot of people. Like, you know, there's okay. this thing that goes around the Twitter. You should be a full professor by 40, you know? And I'm like, you know what? To hell with that. Take okay. it, do what you're doing, have your experiences and cherish every single one, even the bad ones, especially the bad ones, because there's not a single part of what I've done that isn't useful, right? You mm. just have to make it useful. So I, I grew up, you know, again, very, very rural New Hampshire on a lake. Um, I feel very at home in the woods. I, you know, I've fished for dinner, all of yes, those things. Okay. <laughs> it's all good, you know? And, you know, especially you needed to fish for dinner when the sheriff was out repossessing the car because the company <laughs> went bankrupt. It was, there were some bad, there were some bad years and good years. But my parents were off, you know, starting businesses. We were on our own and we had books, but, you know, we also had TV and watched TV, way too much TV and had music lessons. So um, two of my siblings are musicians. There's four of us. Okay. But I just wanted to get out of town. I just, living in the woods, just look at me. I'm not, a, I've got pearls on. I'm not a woodsy person. You're not a woods person. <laughs> Neither am I, but 
Oh, we'll we'll trade wood stories in a moment. Let's talk woods for a second. Oh my god! Okay. Seriously, we heated the house by wood, and okay. I'll and I wanted to, you know I'm in high school, right? You gotta you gotta take a hot shower for high school. I would chop wood in the morning, and I would fill the wood stove because we had our water heated by by wood, and I know exactly how much wood to put in the wood stove to heat the water, run upstairs, get in the shower before my brothers got up, right? And exactly how long to take a shower when the water just started getting cold to get out so they could put their own damn wood in for their own damn hot shower. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. So you grew up uh, in a very rural environment. Very, very rural. Yes. So were the neighbors, like, with their advanced degrees or... Oh my goodness. So one neighbor, the daughter got pregnant at 13, had the baby at 14. Another neighbor the, the got pregnant at 14. Like this was a place where wow. the women, it was not, this was very working class, not even working class, rural New Hampshire. We had like one of my wow. best friends raised rabbits for food. And um, yeah, my daughter and I went to visit her. She married a doctor. She's doing very well. And we were having, she gave me a bottle, bottle of wine. We were reminiscing about old times. And I said, okay. I said, yeah, I think I still had rabbit. First time I had rabbit was at your house. And she said, yeah, I wrote those rabbits. And the daughter comes in and the daughter's like, mom, you ate rabbits? And I was like, yeah, your mom grew rabbits for food. <laughs> and she couldn't believe it, the daughter. like, And I was like, Kathy, did you not? tell your kids how you grew up (laughs) no that's in the past so (laughs) how did you end up in baltimore then right like you did your undergrad at johns hopkins how that what the hell there was um you know i have very strong feelings about sats and the testing and now these back in the the day the psat and the sat um were configured they measured aptitude more than achievement right? Tests are configured these days that they measure how, what you've achieved and learned in high schools. And this is more aptitude, you know, shape rotation, that kind of thing, speaking of shape rotators. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and I did well, and I did well on my PSAT. And at that time, Johns Hopkins was trying to get more girls um, in math, in math. So it was called like the study for the mathematically precocious youth. And so I got this letter from Johns Hopkins. It's like, you're a girl that did well in your PSAT in math. You want to come to Johns Hopkins? And I thought, yes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) I never heard of Johns Hopkins. I'd heard of two schools, Harvard, Yale, and Dartmouth. Like, I didn't know any other schools. And so, and Cornell. And so I was just like... Oh, so I applied and I got in and I did not step foot on that campus till the day I stepped foot on that campus. My, my okay. parents drove me down, dropped me off in Baltimore and left. I was oh, 16 wow. and I was and I had this black roommate, you know, it's just like, yeah. hey, and I'm like, this is great. This is my life. Bye. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I mean, awesome. Well, and I'd assume that they had um, hot water. You didn't have to build a fire to. No, uh, exactly. I was just like, I've got hot water. <laughs> I mean, it's Baltimore, right? The water still runs in Baltimore. Now that that's a joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, for me, this was this was living the good life. Are you kidding? There was yep. like a little canteen, a little diner was open. You could get French fries anytime you want. I immediately put on Jeez. twenty pounds. Oh, Jeez. I mean, it was, it was so awesome. Did you um 
you know, did you end up just kind of staying mostly in the city over the years or? No, I mean, you know, suddenly when your life explodes, I don't know if you've ever had this experience when, you know, you've got these kind of limited horizons and then all of a sudden you have horizons. Like, like I had, you know, the girls in the hall would be like going to Bermuda for spring break and like had passports and things and, you know, wore shirts with little alligators on them and polo ponies. And I had no idea, you know, what any of this was. So a lot of my early times was figuring like, okay, I thought Baltimore was the thing. I got more to do. And then when you realize that Baltimore is not actually that cool. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you just realized that. I, you know, I was in D.C. most of last year, so I just um, Were you? kept going north. Yeah, I, I, I always wanted to stop into Baltimore. But, but, you know, I'm, like, so West Coast. So, like, you know, spending... Yeah, where'd you grow up? Well, I mean, technically, this is year 23 in Colorado. Excellent. Okay? I, I took a break last year. Um, and then... But I was born in San Jose, so my parents met in the Bay Area. All right. And they were out there like late 60s, 70s, 80s, you know. They were, they were out there before, uh, before tech companies were like the thing, right? Or there were only very few tech companies. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but anyways, in spending time in the Northeast, I found out apparently that people from Colorado have an accent. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I have an accent, Hollis. Not, not I never in, notice. Not in California, okay? <laughs> but in New York, all right? So I don't know how to explain that. Um, but, you know, so to some of your Wood stories, uh, I still graduated from Woodland Park High School. Oh, which, okay. which is in Teller County. I don't uh-huh. know if you had, you know, Pikes Peak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, what were you doing up there? Oh, that story is not good for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like a couple of years from now, I'll admit some of that stuff. But uh, excellent. And, and it's a bedroom community for anybody that's confused. It's a bedroom community of color of the spring. Um, but so I did still grow up doing some hunting, and uh, so I I grew up around a lot of country country boys. So I, I can, you know, I was never like country. But I'm definitely fine out in the sticks. It does not bother me whatsoever. Um, so you'll survive, I, right? I'll survive. I could survive. I could we'll survive. survive in the North American deciduous forest for at least a <laughs> <laughs> That's precise. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's really cool. Now, uh, I think that we've probably got about 10 more minutes or so. But... Um, you know, I've, I've kind of been leading this conversation, but are there things that you're thinking about or like pondering, working on? Is there stuff that's like top of mind to you right now? Anything that you want to share or maybe take well, us in another what direction? What I like about talking with you and what I've liked about our conversations on Clubhouse and what I really admire about you, especially this idea of a rant, is <laughs> the your approach of talking yourself into understanding or the kind of the, well, I think that's really, I think that's really lovely. And I think it's, um, the thing is you're nice about it, right? I know what we can talk about. Let's talk about being nice. 
Okay. Okay. All right. This is not a conversation that most people have, right? And sure. I think um, I've got two kids. They're 29 and 27, and they're you know one's an engineer in Silicon Valley, one's a lawyer. And, you know, one of the things that I spent a lot of time with them growing up and because it has helped me in times of like incredible awkwardness and not knowing what I was doing and changing what I'm doing and working on political campaigns is the importance of being nice and the poise of being supportive and the importance of listening, even though I'm doing a lot of talking here, right? And hearing what it is that people have to say and putting yourself in a position of being the one to say, you know, how can I help? What can I, what can I, what can I, you know, what can I do? And, you know, this was very helpful working on political campaigns. I looked at a lot of, worked on a lot of sort of grassroots political campaigns. And you do a lot of door knocking, you try to sell the candidate that you're selling, but you also say, what, what, what do you want? How can I help you? How can the, how can the, how can the candidate help you? And this kind of aspect of niceness and listening um, is really underrated as a matter of trust building between people. And I have found that the people that I've liked and admired on Clubhouse particularly, um, you know, because this is kind of still sort of new and this is how I know you, yeah. are ones that really listen and, uh, and give. And, um, but it doesn't get talked about. Um, so yeah, I want to know about what you think of that actually, because you do it. I listen to you do it. Yeah. It's so interesting. I don't know if my need to explore ideas through speech is part of some kind of learning disability. Uh, but as I've, I guess I was very vocal when I was younger. And I would be described as like really haughty and arrogant, even if I was like 13 or 14 years old. Um, so um, I think what I'm trying to do is be vulnerable. And then uh, hopefully that like creates openings for others um, where maybe they can explore something that they've been thinking about or maybe a little bit shy to explore. And you got to think, I have a twin sister, mm. so I'm a twin, but Excellent. my, my twin is more introverted than I am. Um, so, so I'm a little bit more externally focused than her, even though I would not call myself an extrovert. So us, you know, growing up together and also having to learn how to communicate with each other, especially as we've gotten older, I think like her introvertedness has helped me tried it's helped me understand the limits of speech because you can only say so much uh and uh i think it's helped me open my ears a little bit more which is why i have to tie back to something else you said earlier okay, okay? so we were talking about like um the hardware and the software mm -hmm. of poetry and for some reason i can't get too uh, I'm going to call them both artists, okay? I there's two artists I can't get out of my head. And I'll explain why. Uh, one's John Mikhail Basquiat, all right? Mm -hmm. And then the other one is actually Kanye West, okay? And I know Kanye is a contentious mm -hmm. figure. 
Um, so maybe these two people, and we may not be able to explore this fully, but maybe these two people are kind of rare examples of something. Uh, but if you just like a little bit of historical context, if you think about Kanye, when he entered the hip hop scene in the late nineties, early two thousands, he was like off the edge of the hardware. Like it was almost not listenable the way that he would rap, which is why a lot of people focused on his production and nobody wanted to actually pay a dollar for his rap. Uh, but, but, but he obviously rapped anyway. Okay. And he, and he ended up funding his first album with his own money. Nobody wanted to pay for his rap. They would pay for his production, but not his rap. Hmm. So, uh, and it's silly, too. His first album was called College Dropout, which is so silly. But the, he grew up in a family that put a high value on education, so I'm not sure why he rejected it. But do you think, like, um, these are these anecdotal examples of, of um, people that were able to get the hardware and software to fit for whatever unknown factors that, you know, kind of occurred fortuitously or... It's a good example. I don't, I'm not really a Kanye West aficionado, so I, I can't okay. speak to, the, to, to, to it. But, but understanding that rap is a really great example of, of the genre, of the form, right? Um, and the content of it fitting together. Um, so I'll, I'll use something that I know a little bit better, which is the ballad, right? Which is, <laughs> you know, the store, the 3434. Beats, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter what the story I'm telling, the form of the story you'll follow along, you know, it's going to be kind of a, a story told in verse over time. Um, rap, which again, I'm not as familiar with, but I understand, and I don't want to say anything that, that, that foregrounds my ignorance, but that gets me shot. <laughs> no, I'm playing. I'm playing all. That's it's a joke. All good. A joke. But, but the form, <laughs> there's a certain, you know, thing that you have to do, and then you have to rhyme it, and then you have to do this other thing, and then you have to rhyme that, and then you have to come back, and then you have to loop around, and like these things, as you're saying, these this this sort of hardware, um, and other things have to happen happen, are happening in conversation with the actual words, with the semantics, right, mm. and and. Um, so yes, that would be an example. And sometimes it takes a very long time, Basquiat as well. Mm -hmm. It takes a very long time. You've got a talent. And now, so what I'm saying, oh, what was it I was saying? There was something that came out. I know we're talking about different kinds of music. Elton John, there was something he said yep. I saw in the paper today that he doesn't like pianos, right? Really? And he doesn't have one in his house. And he wished wow. he was a guitar player, right? And I'm like, wait, what? But it's the sort of thing that he doesn't like the the piece of hardware that he makes his software on. <laughs> oh, interesting. Right? Jeez. So anyway, the point is that, that yes, you know, to think about production, artistic production, is not just the speech itself, not just the utterance, but the okay. whole package, the crafting of it. Which, well, by the, yeah. By the way, Elton John's, uh, disclosed that he may have one of the largest modern hip hop collections on planet Earth. He's obsessed with hip hop. I, I, I don't know what his deal is there, but um, he's got it from vinyl, <laughs> compact disc, tape. I don't know. He said every medium. It doesn't. That's uh, excellent. 
and by the way, there's like 70,000 things we didn't get to talk about today, mm -hmm. like, like uh, politics and religion, or just religion in general. But um, I wanted to ask you, so at least what you can share. Um, you, you said earlier, I think, you have a book coming up. Is, is there anything that you can share on that front? Well, so the book that I'm writing now, I'm writing two books. One is on this poet, Robert Hayden, um, who's really this fantastic poet um, who um, you, the poem that most people know that he's um, uh, written is called Those Winter Sundays. It's a sonnet that he wrote about his father. It's not really about his father. It's about a whole bunch of things. Um, and he was uh, teaching um, at Fisk University and HBCU in the 1960s during um, the first uh, Black Writers Conference um, with Amiri Baraka, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, a whole bunch of Black thinkers that were, again, what I was what I was um, uh, describing before, a kind of putting, a, drawing a line in the sand and saying we are creating this new Black aesthetic where, you know, Negro writing is what was how they called it, is that the, the terms that they used, and who's in? Oh, and he said, you know what, I'm not in, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, he said, I, I, I want to be a poet. I don't want to be, as the, the phrase, the Negro poet. I want to be a poet. I want to do kind of my thing, but good luck. Like, and he was skewered for this. He was skewered Ooh. for this. And if you look up Robert Hayden and Miri Baraka and that whole the Fisk Writers Conference of 1966, and then there was a second one in 67, and it's his home turf. He took mm -hmm. a lot of crap. He said, look, to be a poet is to, be, is to use the entirety of the history of poets. Like the way I was talking about a university, it's got everything there. If you're going to write especially a sonnet, you're going to be in a family with Petrarch right? Mm -hmm. With Milton, that these are your literary forebears, right? Mm -hmm. And what Baraka and what the Black Arts Movement was doing is like, these are not our forebears, whether those forebears are black or white, they are not our forebears. And the way I've described it is very much, you know, ancestor killing, right? And mm -hmm. so, so um, Robert Hayden's like, count me out. And so he was very much sidelined for a, for a long time when he just kept plugging away, writing his poetry. And his poetry itself is steeped in black culture, steeped in his own culture. He was also um, married a woman who was from the Baha'i faith. And I don't know how much you know about the Baha'i faith, uh, which is basically a, a belief system of like, let's, I mean, I'm not an expert. I'm going to have to be for writing this book, but it's like collapsing all walls, national, racial, Right. Mm -hmm. We are one people. And it's a very much a kind of people that I have known who have been Baha'i have deliberately married out of their race in order to mm -hmm. make this collapse happen. Um, not him. He was married to a black woman as well. But this is the this idea of not being categorized kind of comes through his poetry. And I find this from my own self. So it's a very personal book about how I've come at his poems um, and especially this one poem, which was about making a fire in the morning to heat the house up. <laughs> so <Interesting>. naturally. <laughs> You're going to be able to relate to that. Yeah. Literally. From New Hampshire, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Um, um, 
And then I'm also so, writing a book with Skip Gates on Phyllis Wheatley. So, and this is going to be, a, it's called The Trials of Phyllis Wheatley. And it's about, um, it's about her um, being authorized uh, by uh, Boston people to say, yes, this, this girl really did write these poems. Interesting. And there's no date on either one of these yet, right? One, I think the Wheatley book's probably going to be in May, and I have to deliver the first draft of the of the um, Hayden book in September. I'll be on the lookout. Do, uh, do you like the exercise of writing? Like, is that something that you enjoy yet, or is it do you... Have you well, ever enjoyed you know, it? in thinking about you, I, I, I'm not that comfortable talking and I admire oh, really? you. Like the other day I was just listening to you and I was just like, wow, he just, it, these sentences are coming out of him fully formed. That's fantastic. Mm. Like, and your mind and I could, well, I could listen to you. I was really fascinated and delighted. Mm. I can't do that. So I do it on paper. Oh, dang. Okay. So you, uh, writing is more comfortable or more natural than speaking, I guess is the way to say that. I, I mean, I can say the things that I've said to you because they're, it's, they're parts of what I do, but if you asked me a question about something that I haven't spoken about before, I couldn't form sentences the way, the way you are, the way you oh, do. Okay. Um, so yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally admiring what you do. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, so uh, we'll wrap here, even though I don't want to. But I think I think everyone knows that they can find you on Twitter at anecdotal, which for anybody that doesn't know how to spell that, it's A N E C D O T A L. Okay, <laughs> anecdotal. Just letting you guys know, like that's the best Twitter handle, anecdotal. At anecdotal, you can't find Hollis by typing in Hollis. It's at a anecdotal. Uh, Hollis, are there other places, websites, uh, social medias that you like people to connect with you on? Not so much. Thank you. I mean, that's I, I, I try to link things there, but my social, my Twitter presence is like, I, if you'll notice, I stay in my lane. Okay. But right? you did... You did just put out a really amazing piece on Mario. Mario Savio, the the founder and most eloquent sp spokesman of the of the free speech movement in Berkeley in 1964. Did you ask your parents about Mario Savio? No, I didn't. But should you I? Should. Okay, I will. Okay. They will remember. <laughs> they will remember him. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's really cool. All right, Hollis. Well, this has been really cool, and hopefully we get Thank to you. do a part two where we can only talk about contentious stuff like politics and religion. Absolutely. It's been a delight, <laughs> Christopher. Thank you, Hollis.